0: Welcome back to another episode of the Carter Cast. We are finally back after two months. We will be doing episodes weekly again for good. And today we have two-time NBA champion Greg Kaidon. Greg shares a little bit about his time playing for Frank Arnold at BYU. And then we get into his time playing on this 80 Celtics teams and more. But before we get into our interview with Greg, we are brought to you by PodTalk. PodTalk is easily the best way to listen to podcasts. It has the best interface compared to all other podcast listening apps out there. Go join the CarterCast group discussion on PodTalk right now. Stop what you're doing and download PodTalk right now in the App Store. Now, our interview with Greg Kite. All right, we now welcome on two-time NBA champion Greg Kite. Greg, how are we doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Uh, great to be with you, Carter. Great to be with you as well. So let's just start this off.
1: What led you to BYU? Um, I tend to, I think it was I, I- 45 or something. <laughs> oh, what got me? That was the roads that got me there. From Houston, <laughs> Texas. Um, Well, we, uh, I had a little bit of family background. My mom was from, uh, her mom was from the salt lake area of Spanish fork actually. And, and they moved back down from Canada when my mom was 10. And so my mom and her, and I think all of her five, five sisters went to BYU. So we had a little fa- family history there. And I had, uh, two older sisters who spent some years there One of them, one or both of them graduated there and my brother graduated. So it was definitely a, a, a family thing, but I was recruited by a lot of schools all over the country and, uh, had some great choices. I kind of narrowed it down to UCLA, Duke, BYU, Kentucky, Texas, University of Houston. And, uh, but it was just a, it was the right place for me. Um, uh, things were going, starting to pick up there basketball wise when they'd had a little bit of down period a few years before. And uh, so it was a great place, not only athletically, but I knew socially, academically, spiritually, all those things were, uh, it was the right place for me.
0: So if you didn't go to BYU, what was your second choice?
1: BYU Idaho Rick's college of course <laughs> back then no <laughs> it was Rick's back then I wasn't thinking about going to Rick's but um, I, you know I, don't, I never really thought of it that way I mean like I said I went to kind of narrowed it down had a lot of schools recruiting me and I went to uh, some visits and they were all attractive places um, maybe if I hadn't stayed home which I wasn't leaning that way in Texas, probably uh, Kentucky I'm sorry probably Duke or UCLA. What I would have done.
0: Okay, let's talk about that Notre Dame game in the Sweet Sixteen. But never the University of Utah. Never the so. University of Utah. There we go. <laughs> <They actually laughs> That's what we like to
1: hear. They actually were on about my final dozen lists when I was at before my senior year, but it, we eliminated them. And uh Good call. Was, uh, we, we we actually had some connections there. The great great school, great basketball program, but you know, it is what it is. So <laughs> So
0: on that final play in the BYU Notre Dame game in the Sweet 16, did Frank Arnold draw up that play?
1: He did, but you know I was wide open, and Ainge <laughs> still would pass to me. <laughs> Steve Trumbo was wide open on the other side of the basket too. But you <laughs> just Frank had to get all fancy, doing. huh? Coach Arnold and 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 uh, and and Danny knew knew what they're doing. Yeah, you get a you get a last second opportunity. You Give it to your best scorer and best shooter. But uh, yeah, literally, I think it was. Tim Andre and Orlando Woolridge guard the Notre Dame players, big guys guarding me and, and uh, Steve Trumbo and coach just had us down on the blocks, you know, Hey, there for the dish off or get a rebound. So there's a miss. And, and our, our guys stepped up to help and Danny just shot it over. I think Orlando Woolridge tore his arm out of his silver <laughs> socket trying to get to that teardrop that Danny put up there. But uh, no, it was a, well it was a phenomenal play and it was obviously the, Farthest that the, any BYU team's ever gone. I hope somebody breaks it soon. <laughs> hope one of Mark Coach Pope's teams can break it. But getting to the final eight, and it was a great, uh, also a great experience for us with the with the, uh, the the church and recognition for the school, and just just a lot of fun. to Go that far, but then we ran into Big Ralph Sampson the next game.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you leave BYU. It's draft night. Where did you expect to end up?
1: I really wasn't sure it wasn't as maybe uh, clear cut as it is now, although even now, you know, you get down past the first few picks and there's often changes in maneuvering, but um, yeah, you know, back then we had the uh, NBA pre-draft camp like they have now and I was able to go there and performed well. And I went to uh, um, what was then called the Aloha classic. I don't think it's around. It was probably the top uh, senior uh all-star game for college graduating seniors and did did well out there and one of the big things I did was keep myself got good advice and get myself in really good shape after the season had seen some guys even a, even another PYU teammate from earlier years had gotten drafted and and, and kind of affected them there so uh that kind of the, that uh, post experience there in the combine and Aloha classic helped me and uh we just kind of went into the draft Uh, knowing that I might be a late first-round pick, maybe, but maybe more likely a high second-round pick. And so I was 21st pick by the Celtics. There were only 23 teams in the league, so near the end of the first round. But they had just uh, not long before the draft had traded a backup center, Rick Roby, to um, Phoenix Suns for Dennis Johnson. So they were looking for another backup big guy. So it worked out. They fit. We had played that year. Uh, my senior year in in, in uh, Madison square garden in New York and uh, whatever it was called, the, the garden square, uh, whatever the classic was called with St. John's and, and St. Joe's and some others. And, and uh, I know Red Auerbach had been down there scouting that. So that helped. They actually were, you know, and Red had even said they were looking, they were hoping to get Roy Henson, mm-hmm. who was at of Rutgers, six nine, six ten, really long arms. And he got picked to before me by, um, Whoever it was, Philadelphia or whatever, picked before me, before the Celtics.
0: So your first year, you walk into the Celtics locker room. It's Larry Bird, all these legends. Were you intimidated, or were they like really welcoming?
1: The locker room was small, so <laughs> <laughs> I didn't stand there too long. It wasn't like these locker rooms these days, like that new BYU football locker room. Wow. Oh yeah. Um, and, and basketball locker rooms are always smaller, but we we practice a little. Uh, uh, greek orthodox college and, and and uh gym wasn't any bigger than than you have in most uh, church gyms and uh but uh no i wasn't i wasn't intimidated it was kind of a natural thing you know because you got that basketball circadian rhythm from so many you know from going back to 10 11 years old you're playing and building up to the season and, and the school season you know high school season was the big thing then not so much like they do now where travel ball season mm-hmm. AAU is the big season but uh and then in, in college you're building up to that season so it just seemed natural to be playing and over the years through my high school and and college years um you know you played with some players who went to the pros or i get to play you know in off season sometimes those guys are already in the pros so i wasn't intimidated or odd by that but i would step back sometimes you know after a practice or something go wow i'm here with you know bird McHale <laughs> and robert parish and and uh i'll tell you a quick story too when, when the first times at the probably an exhibition game but we play in philadelphia and uh you know you go out 7:30 game you might be out there at six to between six and seven stretching warming up shooting and so i'm out there and uh, and dr j comes out and julius walks by me and says hi greg and i look around he <laughs> goes he knows my name you know it's kind of <laughs> like <laughs> so i guess he was studying the scouting scouting report but uh yeah, it was uh it wasn't uh, it wasn't it was it was great, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't really intimidating. But it is an adjustment, you know, playing against those guys. So.
0: What's your favorite bird story?
1: Um man, there's there's a lot of good ones. So, um he's just Uh, he, he was one of the best trash talkers of all time. <laughs> probably and you can you can google that. That's easy to get on YouTube. And the great thing about Larry with that, not only could he back it up, but it was I think part of how he got his mind, you know, into the game. And, um, it wasn't like it was a macho braggadocio thing. It was more of a strategic thing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get in this guy's head, you know, and, uh, sometimes it affects him. Sometimes it doesn't, but if nothing else, he had fun with it. And so, um, but he was also really confident. So we're playing the, the Knicks in, uh, Madison square garden and, uh, their trainer was named Mike Saunders. And, uh, Larry had been out shooting or something early and, and got to talk with Mike and, and, and they had a little friendly bet. And he said, you know, Saunders said, Larry, I bet you five bucks that you won't bank in a three pointer during the game. And Larry said, you're on. And so (laughs) they get down to the game. Larry probably forgotten about it. And it's like a close game. We're down like two points and uh, it's dead ball. Somebody shooting free throws. It's like a minute left. And, and Mike Saunders gets a, um, uh catches Larry's attention right there by the next and he's going five smiling like (laughs) I got you you know this game's almost over and you haven't done it so very next trip down the court Larry gets the ball we're down two mind you in a close game banks in a three-pointer and comes back and goes
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean what was it like day-to-day going to practice being on the road with those guys
1: oh it was great it was a lot of fun um the uh everybody um got on each other hard we, we cracked on each other we had uh, uh, a lot of great personalities some very uh you know outgoing guys like kevin McHale and ml Carr and danny and and uh, uh uh cedric maxwell just funny guys and but also really veteran guys who are really pros and understood the value of being ready and working hard and uh not having any negative uh you know, vibes on the team. And uh, and then in practice, we competed hard and it really even picked up its pace. Maybe you've read stories before, but we, you know, we had these reversible practice jerseys, white and green, so the subs are the green team. And uh, when Bill Walton joined us in 1986, it went to a whole new level uh, as far as competing with the, uh, you know, in practice. So we were very, very competitive in practice. And you, you got to realize in NBA practice, especially when you get in the season, you have a very few stretches where you really get to go live because there's so many games, but we went after it, even if it was for short spurts. And even if those uh, burden and McHale and those guys were tired, we still pushed them part of what made us a better team. a great team.
0: So how intense were those Lakers Celtics games like going into the game? Were there nerves involved or was it more just like ready to run through a brick wall kind of thing?
1: Uh, they were very intense. Maybe the, Maybe the brick wall. I think we were smarter than running running through a brick wall. But um, <laughs> it was um, it was you know the the tradition as of a of rivalry between the two teams. You know the big two rivals in the NBA. All the championships is there. Being on that stage in the mid '80s, where you know through the '80s, the Lakers or Celtics, one of one or both of them was in every NBA Finals. You know, so the, I think the Celtics in five, four or five, in the in the Lakers. So it was just it was just great being a part of that. Magic Bird era, the whole uh, sporting world it seemed like, and certainly the whole basketball world uh, focused on that. And then just uh, the atmosphere in the Boston Garden and the LA Forum—you couldn't beat it. And and you know, and it built up too. I mean, the guys really had um, respect, but but kind of a, a competitive animosity, you know, for the other each other's teams. And, and uh, we would watch all season long. I don't know if guys do this now. They ought to if they don't, because it's stupid if they don't. But, you know, having the best, because having a home court advantage in the playoffs is really uh, important. So we would look all season long about, did we have the best record? Did we have the best record in the East? Were we better than Philly? Were we better than Milwaukee or whoever was, uh, you know, closest, but also in the league so we could have that home court advantage if we faced the Lakers or whoever it was coming out of the out of the West? And it, it was intense. So there was uh, my rookie year. We played them in a 84-7 um, game uh, NBA Finals. We won in Game Seven. And the next next year, probably because it's hard to sell, may have been harder even those days to sell tickets for a lot of exhibition games. Mm-hmm. We played the Lakers four times in exhibition games. <laughs> I, think, I think one was in, and one was in the Forum. And in that game in the Forum, in the exhibition game there was a a fight that broke out and it was just kind of spilling, spilled over from just that intensity and that kind of that bad blood from the, the playoffs. So it's, it's just, uh, you know, it was, it was real. It was there.
0: So Bill Walton comes in. What was your first impression of him?
1: First impression. I'm not sure. Um, One bill was Bill's a lot taller than he says he is He's probably about (laughs) seven two since he's 611 which is which is which is not true but but bill was a uh, bill was a, f- a, a a fun guy he's got a real uh, sarcastic wit dry sense of humor and we made fun of him a lot too but he was also and you see him if you watch him broadcasting you know, you know how enthusiastic he is mm-hmm. and kind of off the wall which is to me is kind of fun listening to him but he's also he's also a big you know proponent of winning and good basketball and he's he, he compliments guys on the floor and like a, as a teammate he was like that he really and you know as a player that's what he was I mean 88 game winning streak and you know the NCAA record in college at UCLA and then uh, a champion with the, the Portland Trailblazers, and uh, and then a champion with us with the Celtics which he was so grateful to get back to because you know his his career was so Hobbled by injuries, especially mm-hmm. at the pro level, he had dozens and dozens of surgeries and operations on his feet and his knees. And uh, even as limited as he was, when he came to the Celtics in his thirties, he was—he did some things on the court as 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 well as anybody I've ever seen in the game.
0: What's your favorite Bill Walton story,
1: um, Bill? Um, so, you know, Bill's a big Grateful Dead fan, mm-hmm. and uh, so uh they um you know we'd fly into san francisco and he goes oh berkeley the capital of the world you know so (laughs) anyway he's he's like so the dead go we used to go i I guess they don't nowadays but they used to go on these tours or concert tours and they go to and all the deadheads follow them they you know they Mm -hmm. caravan and camp out and so they're in uh they come to the boston area for about a week because they play uh providence rhode island and worcester mass about an hour from Boston, they play like three shows or three or four shows each place. And so they're there about a week. So at practice during that week, during those years, uh, some of the guys from the band, and this is like 10, 11 a.m. in the morning, would come to the practice, you know, and these guys, uh, I don't remember all the names, but uh, Phil Lesh, I think, Phil Weir, Weir, Hart, Kretzman, I can remember some last names, come to the practice and we go, we go, Bill, when when's Jerry Garcia gonna come to, come to practice? <laughs> And Bill says, he says, Jerry hasn't seen Daylight since 1968, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably true. Um, uh,
0: I'm, I mean... So then,
1: Yeah, then, then they, I didn't go and Danny didn't go, but there's a great story about uh, the, the, some of the guys, most of the guys on the team went with Bill to the Dead concert out in Worcester and they got him up on the stage and had, gave him tambourines and maracas and stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs>
0: So how fun was that 86
1: season? Oh, it was a blast. I mean, all those seasons with the Celtics were a blast, but we were rolling then. I mean, we didn't um, – we, we lost one game at home to the Portland Trailblazers in December, and I don't think anybody's – maybe somebody's matched that, but nobody's beat that. Um, we had a goal, which uh, I guess we did years before, but I really remember that, I'm not li- losing two games in a row and we did it the whole regular season until the last two games when they played guys like me and Rick Carlisle and <laughs> Sam Vincent a lot more because it, it, it was wrapped up and they were resting guys a little bit, and we lost those two. But And then we rolled to the playoffs. I think we didn't win, lose more than one game in a series until we got to the finals against the Rockets, and I think that was 4-2. But um, we were really clicking. And that, and that green team, that second unit, you know, we'd be in and... Uh, you know, some of us would be in, in individually with starters, and sometimes even as a unit. And we were—it uh, was great. And Bird was, uh, I guess, MVP that year, and healthy, and Kevin was healthy, and Chief, and Dennis Johnson. So it was a—it was a phenomenal year. Our only, our only—it was awesome. We loved playing the Houston Rockets, and they had Olajuwon and Samson. They were at their peak, but they'd—they'd um, they'd kind of upset the Lakers. Mm-hmm. So it would have been in, in the in the West. It'd been interesting to see if we could have played the Lakers. I mean, they were very, very dangerous and as good as we were, who knows.
0: Yeah, because yeah, the ball movement from the 86 team, if you watch highlights, it's just, uh, the only thing I can compare it to that I've seen is the 2015 Warriors.
1: Yeah, you see sometimes where, where I've seen some of those highlights where they're, they're just passing and we really did move the ball well. Yeah.
0: It's not we even like looking with your well eyes, the, it's just you just know the where these dude. guys are.
1: You know where these guys are and then, then you just get, you know, people get a and, and, and a lot of pro players have it, but unfortunately, there's some even there who don't. But it's really developing a, a basketball IQ. I mean, it's it's individual experience, but it's also collective experience playing together. But when you had a lot of guys who played together for a number of years there, plus then you had savvy veterans come in to that 86 teams like Jerry Seasting and Bill Walton, they, um, those, those magic moments could happen, you know, and just some of those, pa- and, you know, in, in passing, I mean, Larry and Bill, or two of the best passers you know I've ever played with in in pro basketball.
0: So your time in Boston comes to an end, and you end up at the Clippers. I talked, I mentioned to Thurl Bailey about this when he left the Jazz and went to the Timberwolves. Does basketball just become more of a job then when you're on those losing teams?
1: Um, it's a pretty darn good job, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it I wasn't would, I like digging a ditch, man, or or just playing a game and getting paid. So. It, it was still fun uh people come to watch you work which doesn't happen mm-hmm. in too many occupations and uh so it was still fun but it was as far as as far as uh team atmosphere organization atmosphere uh winning it was adopted into the spectrum with the clippers or probably with most uh, uh teams that are at the bottom of the standings and uh so um, and the clippers were in those years i think i went to them and they were the Uh, worst or next to worst record in the league. Mm -hmm. For me, the upside was young players often don't get a lot of, particularly unless you're going to develop into like a Devin Booker or Trey Young or something like that, you don't get a lot of uh, playing time on on championship contending teams. So, you know, I maybe played my 10 minutes a game, my most, and in 70 of the games at the best with the, the Celtics and not a lot of chances to go out there and make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. So going to the Clippers for a year and a half and then the Kings after that, not, not another team with a, a weak record and then even the Orlando Magic, all those were were good experiences where I got to play a lot more and help me to, with my uh, improving and, and hanging on in the so league. I've,
0: I've always been curious about this. When you're at the bottom of the league, I mean, not much is you you don't have much of a chance of going far and do you guys even care after they lose in the regular season?
1: I think the guys who stick around the game a long time did. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm.
1: absolutely. I mean, there's some guys who who might not, and it is easy with easier when you're not winning for things to get a little more, you know, the the, the petty things that can go on with team chemistry or, mm-hmm. or just kind of, you know, as Charles Barkley says, one, two, three, Cancun, you know, <laughs> getting ready for, getting ready for, for vacation. But at the same time, you know, just like myself, other guys, and, and in those days, you know, you didn't have the contracts they had, even for the starters. You're really still playing for the next year or the future. Mm-hmm. And, um, and like I said, if you really – to get to that level, for the most part, for guys, you're, you're, you're pretty darn competitive and you want to go out there and compete anyway. It wasn't like with those bad teams, at least in my mind, that I, I thought we, we wouldn't win, couldn't win the game. And mm-hmm. you know, we went out thinking that we would win the game. And with the Clippers, we um, one day we beat one of the games we beat the uh, Pistons. You know who were eighty nine champions that year or in the finals. Now they may have had a little too much L A. nightlife <laughs> or something the night before, but but we put it on them. So um, any team, even even the bad teams in the league, can 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 beat you. It's just over that that long haul; they can't sustain it. You know.
0: So you're in Orlando shaq comes in what's your first impression of shaq
1: uh big daddy shaq was unique <laughs> you know he was he had a body by body built by fisher like gm you know <laughs> and uh so and literally our coach uh matt gukas at the time he was the coach the years i was there until through shaq's first year i believe matt had been a rookie with the philadelphia then philadelphia warriors mm-hmm. when shaq was uh i mean when wilt chamberlain was like about 27, 28 years old. And he said, and it was, and it, it was true, you know, saw that the only guy he could ever physically, physically compared to Shaq was, was, was Will, maybe built a little bit differently, but still seven one-ish with long arms, big hands, and uh, very athletic, very powerful. And power is really the, uh, the component that really sets you apart in any sport. And, uh, and he was just so, quick and strong and go through guys over guys around guys he, he had fun he loved to play so uh and after two years of starting most of the time before he was there they gave him my starting job and they never explained why and I'm still <laughs> still on I still haven't figured it out but uh, anyway no uh, it was it was pretty darn good I knew uh it was actually a pretty good deal for me to maybe hey be a backup for him which worked out for about a year and a half till I got hurt
0: so yeah, you you start getting hurt. And you realize the end of your career is coming. At some people, I know some athletes say they die twice. You know, once your career ends, was it tough realizing like, oh crap, what am I going to do after basketball?
1: Uh, I had a lot of interest at you know things I wanted to do after basketball, and already gotten into some things. But the biggest thing is, for me, yeah, it was it's it's hard. I think it's hard for most players who who uh, whenever it ends is that you're so competitive. You've done it for so long. And then plus you got, it's, uh, you know, anytime you do anything that's exciting and gets you going, whether it's, you know, riding motorcycles or playing a sport or singing or doing music, you get that adrenaline going, you know, so you become a, uh, adrenaline neurotransmitter junkie, if you will. <laughs> so it's really hard to replace that, you know, and, uh, you know, golf or even coaching does it a little bit, but it's not quite the same, you know? So, um, so just missing that, you know, missing that, uh, being in great shape, that camaraderie, that that being able to compete at that high, high level, uh, is something you, you you miss, and takes a takes your mind and body a while to adjust to. But uh, as far as keeping busy and doing other things, I my problem is not not knowing what to do. It's just trying to not do too much. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you watch basketball today? Oh yeah, I, I watch. I still help coach at the high school level, and. Um, I'm actually commissioner of a minor league basketball called the Florida Basketball Association. I don't have to spend a lot of time with that, but I'm on my way to tonight. We've got a, 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 it's a private school. It's called Pathways School in Orlando. Um, I helped them start there. It's been around 25 years. My wife and I helped to start the school, but we just started high school and high school sports about five years ago. So we've got the high school summer league championship game tonight. I'm leaving okay. Good <laughs> I'm luck. Here a little bit to, to, to get ready for that, but um uh, um so um do you like so how it's so played? as far as watching the game yeah, what's that
0: do you do you like how it's played today?
1: oh, it's different, you know, I'm watching all the n b a playoff games mm-hmm. when you get to the playoffs, you like good teams. I'm sad the jazz lost, and the Celtics mm-hmm. weren't any further in it, but uh, I really like right now the the uh the Suns, and uh I like the bucks and the uh and the, uh, and the Atlanta Hawks are really winning me over too. They're pretty intriguing and they and they play. So in general, these teams that get to the end, even though the style of the is a little bit different, in some ways it's um, uh, it's still really good because you don't get this far without being a, a good team, without good ball movement, pretty good defense. Um, there are some things that have changed in the game and some have just been some trends and analytics, mm-hmm. but others have been the rule changes. And that's the thing... Um, they did about 2005 that I've got a little bit of a issue with that. I think that the, uh, and I hear there's a little talk of it. If the NBA would back off of that because they, mm-hmm. they eliminated a lot of the physicality on defense and they did it for marketing reasons. Yep. They did it because the scoring totals got low in the, uh, in the nineties in the Jordan era and the post Jordan era, you had a few good teams like the Knicks and the, and the Pistons or the heat who, would grind it out and it could compete, but you had a lot of bad teams that were using the whole shot clock and trying to keep it, or average teams so they could keep a game close. Mm-hmm. And so game scoring in, uh, in the 70s and 80s weren't real uh, appealing to the fans and, and teams averaging 90 points. So you know, in 2005, they limited hand checking uh, for, on the ball handlers. They limited how you could bump or disrupt the, the weak side off the ball cutters and they, and they and it lightened up a little bit on the post play and so you watch them now you know you can't no wonder I mean those guys are great ball handlers and quick but they can get every almost who's who's got some speed get up ahead of steam get to the basket because they can't mm-hmm. they can't touch them or impede their progress and then you know on these shooters if there's any sort of minimal contact it's a foul and they're falling down and and scoring's up but you know it's also interesting nobody's ever mentioned this except me so you're in on a good secret you go back and look at our Celtics teams and the teams in, and not only the Celtics but all the NBA teams in the in the in the 80s and the 70s the scoring totals were just as high today as with the same rules and we didn't shoot as many threes so some differences so you know if a team's averaging 120 points a game is it any different than them averaging 112 or something mm-hmm. so that's the only lot... thing I'd like I'd like see. to see a little bit a little bit more letting the defense be a little bit more physical and then also, uh, I love the post game, and it'd be great to see, um, you know, a little bit more post play. And that's yeah. a good combination with which spread the floor and the threes. And, you know, the mm-hmm. trajectory of the threes being shot is just going off the charts, but it's also some due to the analytics.
0: Yeah, because back in the – you watch those 86 games and back in the 80s and stuff. There's real flow to these games now. It's just replay after replay after timeout after TV timeout. Get their commercials in. Does that bother you? Uh,
1: well, there's always been the timeouts and TV broadcast games. I don't mm-hmm. know if they've increased those, but the uh, but the but the one uh, um, of the, the replays where they go and watch for the the play. Uh, it's 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 a little too much. And just like in that, I don't know the Phoenix the Phoenix game the other night where. Ridiculous. teams are out of timeouts and, they, and, they, and they're replaying this thing on out of who it went off of so it gives Phoenix the time to set up a great play and and, and, and score the winning basket so uh, I'm, I'm with Jeff Van Gundy who's kind of answered you know, so I wish they could they could minimize that you know take it out it's it's nice it's nice just to figure out who the ball went off of or if this was a foul or not but and some of that stuff is tied into the physicality too because mm-hmm. they're going and looking at everything that sometimes it's just a basketball play and trying to figure out whether it was a flagrant or not and so Mm -hmm. I mean these guys aren't dying if they get clipped in the chops once in a while accidentally or even a little intentionally they'll be okay you know and so yeah but um yeah there's not a lot of um as much off the ball movement now and not a lot of screening there's a lot of pick and rolls high pick and rolls and things like that but it's a lot of spread the floor and uh and crank it up, and and you know what's down too is although like Atlanta last night did a great job with it, uh, offensive rebounding is down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's yeah, an I mean, opportunity if you want to go get a bucket, go get an offensive <laughs> rebound. Do you think you would have done it, well
0: in today's game?
1: Well, I'd been shooting threes like crazy, <laughs> like uh, like Brook Lopez or something. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there wouldn't been the way for the way I played. You know, no, there wouldn't be as much demand. Mm-hmm. that's actually you know limited yeah not that it wasn't somewhat limited anyway then just because i didn't uh perform that well offensively but um but i certainly would have i didn't show it much in early years but a little bit with those bad teams i did step out and shoot you know 15 17 footers and so for a guy with the you know it's tough in the middle with with, with really big long guys a <laughs> lot of people to get shots off so i can understand out there. And, and heck, you know, if, if these guys can stand out there and shoot three pointers, I'm sure some of the mentality of it is it's a lot less um, taxing than going to the bucket mm-hmm. and getting, your, getting, you know, knocked around. And uh, so. Um, so nope. you just adjust with the games and, and people and people have a green light, too. I mean, I mean, they're not, you know, they don't want a guy shooting 25 percent and crank up threes, but there's people shooting two or three or four gamers, 33%. So,
0: so against the guys you played against who talked the most trash besides bird.
1: Um, I'm sure I wasn't always up next to the guys did <laughs> Gary Payton was really good at it. I think Gary, Gary Payton, and I'm sure, uh, did
0: anybody ever get under your skin? Jordan
1: scheme? did probably a little bit, but Jordan wasn't, uh, he was scared of me, so he didn't say anything to me. <laughs> uh anybody get under my skin. Uh, he, he, he under my fingernails sometimes when they <laughs> grab him the ball. But no, they, their skin got under me. Um so uh no, nah, not in particular. I mean I they were all uh, it was all, Okay. You now, there's the old Beer Lamb beer story. I know a lot of guys didn't don't don't still don't don't like him. <laughs> and our, our GM in Boston called him the consummate provocateur and bill was <laughs> a really good player he was a really smart player but he was uh definitely good at, at, at provoking stuff and he had a couple of plays where you're going like this is just over the top <laughs> where he took guys out but um...
0: all right so last question then i'll let you go who's the funniest guy you've played with in the nba
1: funniest guy um might be Cedric Maxwell. Max Max was really really funny, <laughs> yeah, funny guy. Yeah, he was there. He was there when I got to the Celtics, and he'd been a starter. Then he became sixth man for a while when Kevin transitioned, and then they um, he was involved in the trade that brought Bill Walton in. And and, and Maxwell does uh, uh, broadcasting for the Celtics and has some funny lines. So Cedric was funny, but there there are a lot a lot of funny guys. I mean, you have you're around a team, you're around a locker room, you got a lot mm-hmm. of fun. Going on, but an actual, you know. Do you have a so good Cedric a- What's that?
0: you have a good max? Good Cedric
1: story? story? Yep. uh Yeah, here's one. Cedric, there was getting uh Dan Roundfield. Well, a couple of them here. So Dan Roundfield played for the Hawks mostly when we were playing, and he would always have and, and Cedric kind of liked or admired Dan or something. He was about a six nine forward. Cedric guard him. And so roundfield would often come out with like wristbands an elbow pad and knee brace, whatever it was three or three, four different things on. So instead of just clowning around would go out and see what roundfield was wearing during, before the pregame warmups. And he'd go out and match him. He'd go put the same thing on <laughs> just to wear the same, same, same thing. And then, um, so this is, this is a little bit a longer story, but Danny, so Danny played in, in, uh, you know, pro baseball, Danny Ains played pro baseball with the blue mm-hmm. Jays. And, um, Danny tells a lot of good baseball stories and one of them was about closing the books uh, when you're going to see he played with a home run hitting first baseman veteran, a guy named John Mayberry and Danny says to John Mayberry at the end of the season it's like Labor Day. They got a month left in baseball season. The Blue Jays are in last. He says, hey, Big John, you got 30 home runs and, you know, 95 RBIs. If you have a good September, you'll end up with a 110 RBIs and 35, 35, 36 homers and and Mayberry smoking a cigarette back in those days in the locker room, <laughs> makes a big drag and says, nope. He says, pop. <laughs> he says, no way. He says, I'm closing the books. <laughs> he says, if I do that this year, they'll want more next year. And so Danny <laughs> says at the, at, at the end of the, uh, um, sure enough at the end of regular season, he had like one more homer and five more RBIs. And so Danny told the story to us and Max loved that story. <laughs> and so Max was going to be a free agent. And uh, uh, we're playing Cleveland. They got Lonnie Shelton, big, burly, strong, big forward, bruising guy. And uh, and and Max is going to be a free agent. And says, we said, so Max, you're going to you got to guard Lonnie tonight. You're going to be, you know, how you going to go? He's going to be a free agent next year. He says. He says, nope. He says I'm closing the books. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get out of this game pretty quickly somehow. So I said, I don't wanna get hurt. You know, he was saying he didn't want to get hurt with this 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 contract they're negotiating. So the next year we're playing him again. Max has signed the contract and uh we said <laughs> we said, uh so Max, you still gonna play, Lonnie Sheldon's still playing. He said he says, Yeah, I'm playing, man, he can hurt you. <laughs> so <laughs> he was joking, but you know, he said, Hey I get the contract now. If I get hurt, so what? <laughs>
0: so that's fantastic. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. All the best, and uh, good luck in your game tonight.
1: Thank you. Good luck with your uh, broadcast, and uh, look forward to maybe listening to some of your other podcasts.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Take care. Okay.
1: You're welcome. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode with Greg Kite. He shared some fantastic stories and always grateful for his time. Don't forget to follow my Twitter page, at B8, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Episodes will be coming out each Monday and hopefully do bonus episodes during the week. See y'all next week. Bye.